Good morning, guys. We're going to jump in Scripture. Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, as you guys are opening there. Uh, real quick word on uh, the past two Sundays. If you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Uh, real quick, last two weeks, we've done a little bit of a teaching series in the Gospel of John, but we kind of had more of a focus upon kind of the Israeli-Islamic uh, situation that's been happening in the Middle East and took some time to process and digest that, think about that from a scriptural angle. Uh, but we also kind of created some space for you guys to ask some questions, and I'll show that little slide up here real quick. Uh, disregard, like, the other content that's on the slide that has the uh, little QR code for the question. There we go. So disregard that part right there, because that's part of the last week's message, uh, not part today. So don't get confused by that. But we had a little segment here, a little QR code. You can ask questions. I said that I was going to address all the questions. There's a, a handful of them, almost a dozen of them. Um, and I was trying to figure out, should I do them on a Sunday morning? We had a lot of them, so I didn't want to just rush them, nor did I want to. I wanted to give them the proper space I thought that they were due, um, but I didn't also want it to disrupt what we're normally doing on a regular Sunday morning. So what I'm going to be doing is this next week, I'm going to be on my Instagram feed, probably also share that with our Calvary Slow Instagram feed as well. We'll provide a link for that. If you already follow me, great. If not, you can just kind of follow and then hopefully anticipate those to be coming, and I'll address all the questions that you have on there. I kind of put them into um, a particular link and a feed that you guys can follow along. Hopefully, it will be helpful for you guys. Um, like I said, I'll also provide a QR code for you next week or in our e-weekly so that you guys can get the information that would be helpful for you guys to process the questions that you guys that were on your mind. So hopefully, that all makes sense. Um, so Gospel of John chapter 10 is where we're going to be at here today, beginning in verse 22. We're going to make our way to the end of the chapter. Um, before we jump in, just going to give a quick little, like, I don't know, title of, to what we're going to be looking at here today. Um, in summary, as I was trying to think about a way to uh, articulate what the remainder of this chapter is about, I find it sometimes helpful for me. It's like a little handle to kind of hold on to to think about. Uh, so I think of this title as being the claim and the controversy of Jesus, the claim of Jesus and the controversy that Jesus creates. I think we have a slide for it, but maybe we don't. Um, and underneath that little subtitle, I love subtitles. And this is my subtitle I created, and I was kind of proud of it, but um, you can decide. How Jesus invites us to examine our opinions, biases, uh, and responses in light of his claims and actions. All right? So again, how Jesus invites us, or if you want to put it more personalized, how Jesus invites you to examine your opinions, your biases, and your responses in light of his claims and his actions. This is really important that most scholars and Bible teachers would all agree that what we're going to read here today is probably one of the most pivotal and most important segments of the entire Gospel of John, and we'll read about that in just a moment. So let me pray real quick. We will begin to jump in and get to work. We'll just basically break it down into three main segments. There's three main paragraphs that we'll look at. Those will basically provide the segments that we'll look at. I'll have little titles over each of those for you. Again, I find these helpful for me personally. Hopefully they're helpful for you as well. And then we will get to work taking a look at each one of these things. So let me pray. We'll get to work. Jesus, thank you for your love. And we come, God, with hearts that just want to learn and grow and be transformed by you. God, we thank you for the great things that you're doing on the Central Coast, in our church, in our nation, uh, awakening people's hearts and souls alive. God, this is the work that we, we long for. We pray for more of it here on the Central Coast. God, we pray even for this community that we would see you uh, awaken uh, San Luis Obispo in ways like never before. Um, we need you, Jesus, and we need not just our opinions of you, 
um, or inherited understanding or opinions from you or about you. God, what we need is your revelation. So we ask you, God, that you would give us hearts just that are quick to hear and learn and grow and absorb and obey all that you have to say about yourself. And it would transform our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do right now, we'll basically break it down into three main segments. The first one we'll take a look at is really the question of Jesus' identity. Uh, I'll pick it up at verse 22. Again, just by way of a real quick refresher, um, this little segment that we've been reading in John chapter 10 is part of a larger, what we call a, a percopy, uh, like a story of the life of Jesus. It begins when Jesus kind of heals this particular guy of blindness. He's healed. This creates controversy because it's done on the Sabbath. Everybody wants to cancel Jesus, kill Jesus put him to death. The religious leaders are freaking out, breaking out in hives, and they're really upset with Jesus. And as a result of that, what we see is Jesus addresses them. He doesn't back down. He doesn't pull away. He, in a sense, stands up with courage and continues to double down on his identity and his mission to what he was about to do. And this ultimately ends up getting him in significant trouble. And we'll read this within a chapter where they're actually wanting to put Jesus to death. But I don't want to get ahead of myself, but let's jump in. We'll pick it up at verse 22. And, uh, make our way through this. Uh, Verse 22, it gives us a little bit of a time frame as to when this took place. It says, it's at the time of the Feast of Dedication that took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in uh, in the colonnade of Solomon. So uh, first of all, John, who's the author here, he's telling us a little bit of the time frame of the year. This probably would have been around November, December, similar time frame as us. Uh, He mentions the Feast of Dedication. This is another one of those like little details that be easy to miss. This is not a biblical holiday. In other words, you're not going to find the Feast of Dedication throughout any other Old Testament book of the Bible. Uh, The Feast of Dedication is actually rooted in the more modern history of the people of Israel. I say modern. Back then, modern, not our modern, but it was uh, known as what what we would call today as Hanukkah, uh, the Feast of Dedication. It kind of is rooted in the time when the people of Israel, they were suffering. They were under the heavy boot of a guy named Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a leader. He hated the Jewish peoples, a strong anti-Semite, hated the Jewish religion. He actually set up like a, uh, within the temple of the people of Israel, this most sacred holy spot, he set up a, a pig to be sacrificed in the middle of that. And that basically desecrated the temple. And as you would imagine, when religious suppression takes place, um, oftentimes it fosters an incredible reaction uh, to what's happening, or a revolt, or rebellion. That's exactly what took place. There's a guy by the name of Jacob Maccabeus, had a brother, and they basically formed kind of this militant militia, and they did exactly what militant militias do. They, you know, framed a means of killing lots of people, and as a result, this rebellion took place. They stood up for their, their, their God, for truth and righteousness. Again, it's definitely not the way Jesus would have handled things, but they were zealous for the way of God, and they slaughtered a lot of people, and as a result, they gained uh, a time of freedom. Um, and again, there's a whole history behind this. The, it was during the time of year that we're celebrating right now, um, and it had to be tied in with lights, uh, the light in the middle of the temple, the light never went out. And so that's what the Feast of Dedication is today, or the Feast of Hanukkah. So we're told that by the time that Jesus was alive, this was a holiday that was still being celebrated. So did Jesus celebrate Christmas? The answer to that is no. He celebrated Hanukkah. He was here. He was celebrating Hanukkah. He's at the temple doing what Jews would do. They would celebrate this particular feast. Now, did Jesus tell his disciples, I also want you to celebrate Hanukkah? No, because this was more of just a traditional thing that Jesus was Jewish in Jewish custom, Jewish. Uh, The big takeaway I want you guys to think about this, 
Jesus was a human, familiar with the human experience, familiar with the ins and outs of what it means to live on planet Earth and deal with the stuff that we deal with and have to think about life as we have to think about life. Jesus knows what we are going through. And we see him in the midst of this. John just wants us this little detail. This is one of those little details, I would say, as you read the Bible, that kind of help us to realize this is not a fable. This is not a fabricated, made-up story just to kind of convince people to follow some form of new religion. This is literally a narrative written from some particular narrator's perspective, bringing us into the story with regular, repeated invites to totally devote the sum total of our lives to following the central figure of the story, which is? Are you guys sure about that? You sounded very unsure about that. Which is to celebrate who? Jesus. Good. It's okay. You can have a lot of boldness and courage to just proclaim that. It's Jesus. And just, by the way, anytime a question usually gets asked within church, you're very safe to just always say the answer, Jesus. Always. <laughs> always. All right. All right. So the point of the matter is John's bringing us into the story. Uh, it takes place at, at space and time in the middle of this particular situation. Now, moving on to verse 24, it says, and the Jews, this would be the religious leaders, Jews, they were gathered around him, and they said to him, how long will you keep us in, in suspense? If you are the Christ, or in other words, the Messiah, the King. Now, again, we've talked about this before throughout the series of Gospel of John. When these religious leaders were thinking of the word Christ, they were not thinking of, are you the Son of God? Are you God incarnate? They had in their mind this idea of a what you would call a messianic expectation. They were looking for a Messiah that would basically be like a warrior king. So in their minds, this is how they would understand the concept of the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? In other words, are you going to kick butt? Are you going to overthrow the Roman Empire? Are you going to crush them? Are you going to kill people? Are you going to shed blood? Because you are. We're on your team. If you're going to tell us, like, turn the other cheek and love our enemy, we'll probably kill you for that because we don't like that. Or if you're going to be this whole God incarnate thing, no, we're, we don't like that either. In other words... This is one of the problems that we oftentimes do. We come to God with certain expectations, and we superimpose our expectations upon him, and we get really disappointed when he doesn't meet our expectations. But this is what it means to follow Jesus, is we bring our expectations, our hopes, our dreams, we lay them all down at his feet, and we allow him to have the ultimate final say. That's in short way of just simply describing he is king over all things, and our job is to submit our lives in some total to him, someone, hello. Um, our, our job is to orient our lives around his kingship, his lordship, and let him be the one that informs and brings our awareness and our understanding to be framed around himself. So with that, uh, these religious leaders, that come to him, they're like, tell us plainly. And then Jesus answered, I told you, yet you didn't believe. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. And you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So I want you to pause and think about the reality of this. Um, now, people come and they have questions. Now, one of the things I've learned over the years, I've, I sometimes joke about this with my wife, like I've, I've worked for over 30 years with people. Um, I, I'm, I would imagine I probably should and could be able to earn some sort of like honorary psychology degree just because I've worked with people all the time and I've learned how people think and watched certain patterns of behavior and actions and activities and arguments and ideas and narratives that we believe and uh, frame our lives around. But one of the things I've, I've, I've realized is you can have questions and there's different types of questions or different 
areas or arenas in which people ask questions. You can have people that ask questions, and they're genuinely from an intention of wanting to learn, not knowing, discovering. In other words, it's from a humble position of just saying, I really want to learn, so I'm going to ask you 15 questions. But my posture is one where I really want to grow. I want to get to know you. I want to get to know the truth. I want to get to know what's really there. Um, but then there are other forms of questions that are not for that. They are kind of with the motivation of exposing, exploiting, and framing up someone for wrongdoing. Which type of question do you think these guys are asking? The latter, yeah, of course. Um, they were not interested in worshiping Jesus. They weren't interested in being like, show us who you are so that we can worship you. They were like, tell us again who you are so we can frame you, get you on you know, Instagram live, and then we can have people judge for themselves and kill you. That's kind of what they're thinking is they want Jesus to say something again in order to trap Jesus. So again, a lot of this has to do with the posture. One of the things that in terms of these particular leaders were these guys, so my question for you is, are they spiritual? Are they religious? Are they moral? Absolutely, super spiritual. These are the religious leaders. Uh, They are very religious. In other words, they have a deep, deep commitment to religious actions and attitudes and ideas and um, a a variety of... um, uh, cultural concepts of the day, um, and they were also very moral. In other words, if you were to like compare morality, like modern morality to these guys, these guys were like super, super moral people. So here's the thing I want you to take away from this. It's possibly spiritual, religious, and very moral and completely be in opposition to Jesus. That's exactly what's happening with these guys. So again, it's common in our world today for people often have to be like, I'm very religious or I'm very spiritual or have a certain type of morality that aligns with this particular uh, political viewpoint. But the fact of the matter is, that's not enough. It's not enough to be religious or spiritual or moral. It has to be something in which we frame our lives around the kingship of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, our religious spirituality and morality really don't account for much, other than oftentimes giving us a platform on which we can showcase our genuine goodness and beauty based upon ourselves. But again, that fails at some point as well, and it will fail us and let us down and, and or turn us into religious bigots, which is exactly what these guys were and the framework in which they were operating from. But Jesus tells them, look, I've told you the truth. You guys want to hear me say this again, but I, I keep telling you, I keep bringing you back to this truth again, but you will not listen or you will not hear. So again, this is the question. What does it take for us to believe? What does it take for you to believe? Like, if you're not a Christian here this morning, say, for example, like, what, what do you need? Well, let's say, for example, you are a Christian or you would claim to be a Christian or someone were to ask you and kind of pin you down and be like, are you a follower of Jesus? And your answer might be like, like yeah, but, but, and there's always the, the but that might be there, but there are hangups or objections. Now, again, I don't want to minimize those hangups or, or those objections. I want to honestly, like, honor those things because they're there for some reason. And they might be there because you had a bad experience or you were raised in a family that had some, like, grave pathologies or brokenness that was as a, as a result of that, or maybe you had a bad church experience, you had some church hurt or some deep pain or experiences of letdown, which you thought God was going to do something for you, you had messianic expectations that Jesus was going to do something for you, but he didn't do those certain things for you, or you had certain hopes and expectations, and they always keep failing or falling through, and at some point you have this kind of like God wound or God hurt in your heart. But, but the question I would have for you is, like, like what would it take? What, what needs to happen in your life in order to move you into a place or a space of saying, I'm all in? I'm all in. Jesus is 
God, king over my life, everything he says, I will do the very, very best in the power that God gives me to obey and to live according to him. If you're not there, like, again, it's important for you to just think about, like, what, what needs to happen? So sometimes I find it's not always just a matter of, like, more information, more data, more detail, more miracles. Because the issue is not so much data, it's our hearts. We're unwilling to really take that step of faith and trust. Because that's what relationship is. Relationship involves trust. Christianity, at the end of the day, is not about just simply following a bunch of rules and regulations and ideas and ideologies. It's about a relationship with the God who made you and framed you and who loves you. But again, if we have a hang-up on being able to trust this God for whatever reason, because somebody that may have represented him somewhere along in our lives, uh, as a result of that, it's kind of violated that trust, confidence that we have. And so therefore, we have sort of a relationship with God, but it's kind of arm's length relationship with God. At some point, that's going to that's gonna fail you and, and, and break you. And, and my hope would be to nudge you out of that into a place of saying, I want to step into all that God has, but that trust, confidence, vulnerability has to be addressed. And sometimes the reasons behind that trust, vulnerability, relationship needs to be addressed as well because some, there's things that frame that or cause that to happen. So with that being said, these religious leaders just at the end of the day had no confidence or trust in Jesus and were not even willing to even address that. They were just looking for a way to frame Jesus. So thus they asked these questions. Now, the fact is, is again, when we talk a little, about, a little bit even about the opinion, like what type of opinion do you have of Jesus? These religious leaders had an opinion of Jesus. So they're coming to Jesus, and they're asking Jesus questions. So if you want to think of it this way, the, the judge of all the universe, i.e. Jesus, is being judged by these lesser people. The, the whole entire framework has been turned upside down. And so these guys who think they have all the answers and think they have so much knowledge and data and information that they're going to frame the God of the universe in his own words. And they're going to say that, aha, like we, we caught you, we told you so. And therefore, we have proven our righteousness over you and your unrighteousness, and therefore we're going to stone you and kill you, which is we'll read about in just two seconds here. So I was thinking about what types of opinions do we have about Jesus? And again, like I mentioned kind of in our subtitle, that this is an opportunity for us to even challenge our opinions or our, our biases, or if you want to put it in a bigger context, our theology. How do we think about God? How do you think about God? What opinions do you have about Jesus? And one thing I think that's not lacking in our culture today at all are there's no shortages of opinions about Jesus. I was thinking through this. I was thinking about in terms of popular religious opinions that have kind of developed over the past 100, 150, several hundred years. Um, so I, I love history. One of the things I love is amidst uh, other things, I, I love American history, especially like way, way back in the formative days of American history. And one of the things I realized, especially during time of what we would described as kind of like the second great awakening. There was a movement that took place in upstate New York. Um, and as a result of that, there was all sorts of revivals and religious movements that were happening uh, from Jonathan Edwards to Charles Finney, religious revivals and movements. But as a result of that, kind of created sort of a, kind of a burned out, burned out sense in people's hearts. So it's possible to be uh, aware of so, many, so much religious movement and activity and miracles and revival meetings to the point where people just kind of get burned out from that. And we, I think we've seen that a lot even in our culture, in our day-to-day, where throughout the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of, like, uh, people that were, like, the sons and daughters of that youth movement throughout that time, and now they're, like, you know, mid-30s, mid-40s, they're like, I hate Jesus, 
how, why do you hate Jesus? Well, because I was in a youth group and I hated my youth group leader because he had a really cool haircut and they preached kind of a faux form of Jesus and it was really shallow and didn't lack any depth or uh, reality or truth and whatnot. And, and I get that. I realize that. That was, that was an actual thing that happened in American evangelicalism. It's really, really unfortunate. But in some ways, this is exactly what happened in upstate New York. In fact, it became known as the burned out district. Um, to this day, it's known as the burned out district. So this is crazy. I, I don't think you guys knew this or not, but from mid 19th century, so around 1820, all the way to about 1880, so roughly 50 to 60 years, some of the most pronounced, powerful to this day, religious movements started in upstate New York in this burned out district in the wake of a dead religious revival that was once happening and then it just burned out. So I'll give you a couple of examples. And as a result of that, it shaped the landscape of religious understanding about who Jesus is. So for example, uh, the Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons, just took place in 1828 in New York. Uh, There was the idea that Joseph Smith described Jesus as nothing more than a God, not the God, a God, and he was also the spirit brother of Satan. There's a group called the Millerites in 1834. They believe that Jesus was coming again October 22nd, 1844. This failed as a result. Obviously, there was a lot of people that were disillusioned. In the wake of that, there was the formation of what was called the Seventh-day Adventists, and they had, there were some you know, odd teachings that were around the life of Jesus. They've kind of leveled out since then over this modern-day Seventh-day Adventist is vastly different than the uh, beginning stages of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. There's another movement called the Spiritualist Movement in 1848. There were these sisters named the Fox Sisters. They practiced some form of, in the wake of Christianity, this communion with the dead, seances. They believed that Jesus was not the Son of God or not God. He was basically an ascended master. There was a society called the Oneidas Society in 1848. If you guys are familiar with Oneidas Silverware, if you've ever used Oneidas Silverware, well, it came from these guys. Um, it was a cult. I don't know if you knew this or not. It started out as a cult. And uh, they actually believed that Jesus came again in 70 AD and that the, the world kind of came to its final end. And so, therefore, the idea of morality and um, how you live your life is based upon, surprisingly, uh, the main central leader of that particular cult. And he gets to call the shots and gets to formulate the... Uh, the, the morality, shocking, I'm sure some of you are going to be shocked. He actually believed that as the leader, he had sole propriety and sexual relations with anybody that he wanted to. And other dudes in the cult were not allowed to have sex with other women. They had to have their own like, way of dealing with it. So this guy had a very large community of wives and concubines and sexual partners because he gets to set the rules. Because Jesus basically gave him the power. Again, these are things that kind of framed and reformed within that. It's a fascinating story. I think Netflix had a whole segment on the Oneida Society. I read a book on it. It was really good. Anyways, the social gospel kind of formed within this particular same region in 1832 to 1848. A guy named Walter Bosch basically downplayed the godness of Jesus and upplayed the humanness of Jesus. This is what would become the precursor of what we call the liberal gospel. Jehovah's Witness also formed in the city uh, or the state of New York in 1870s. They believe that Jesus was uh, created by God. He's just like one of us, though far more higher ascended. Uh, And Christian science, if you're familiar with that as well, 1879, uh, Mary Baker Eddy believed that Jesus was a healer. As a result of that, uh, sickness and whatnot was basically something part of our figment of our imagination. So all of these had uh, very significant uh, outworking from within our culture today. Again, they get traced back in this particular time of year in American history, all of them within New York, within a 50 to 60 time frame, which is crazy. Again, if you doubt the existence of 
demonic work or satanic work, like, just look at this. Like, how do you explain that? It all happened within a really relatively short time frame. They're still going to this day. Many of them are multi-billion dollar money-making industries that are still spewing out uh, half-truths about who Jesus is to this very day and still shaping people's misconceptions about who Jesus is. Let's talk a little bit about some famous people and their opinions. What I like to think about in terms of more thought leaders or uh, actionable guides. So in other words, if you look at certain actions and ideas and concepts in our culture today, um, they, they come from ideas. Those ideas come from people that purported those ideas or communicated those ideas and lived those ideas. So I'm thinking of people like Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, a guy named Alfred Kinsey, if you're familiar with him. He was a biologist, sexologist. His number one disciple is a dude named uh, Hugh Hefner. If you're unfamiliar with Hugh Hefner, he started Playboy in the 1950s. And he was basically just living out Alfred Kinsey's view on sex and sexuality, that sex is something that should never be suppressed but lived into as far and as extensive as you want to challenge all of the sexual morals of the day because they just come from some sort of weird teaching of Jesus and we discount the teachings of Jesus because Jesus really wasn't anybody great. So therefore, we get to make up our own rules and our own regulations, just unleash what we would know as a sexual revolution, which, by the way, is still going very, very strong in our world today, though it's repeatedly over and over again been identified as a failed revolution because the number one people that are victims in this failed revolution, ironically, are women. Over and over again. Men pay a very high dividend as well, but especially women pay as a result of this failed thing. Uh, within that, you can even toss in the teachings and the ideas of Margaret Sanger. She was the leader of Planned Parenthood. She said this, She's famous for this particular quote in one of her writings. The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Let me read that again, just in case you missed it. The most merciful thing, think about mercy. Think about God's mercy. What does mercy look like? Well, according to Margaret Singer, God's mercy, or mercy, I should say, merciful thing that you can do within a large family to one of its infant members is to kill it. She challenged question the perceptions of Jesus' moral teachings. And as a result of that, it led to ideas. Those ideas led to actions. Those actions have led to how our culture today is shaped and thinks and understands everything as far small as young children, infant life, all the way to the grave and everything in between. And the way our minds think about these things are really, at the end of the day, direct challenges and oppositions to the person of Jesus, that's why all of these things matter, because Jesus has something to say about these things. But when Jesus gets questioned, or we push back on Jesus, or we say, Jesus, I think I know better than you, we're basically putting ourselves in the exact same spot as the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So the questions that we oftentimes ask are actually, actually not asked from an angle of like, Lord, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to be transformed. I want to be humble. I want to serve and devote and know you. They're more framed of, I want to capture Jesus and show the lunacy of his teachings. And what I would suggest to you, nothing's different. <laughs> That's the big point I'm trying to say. Nothing has changed. We still live in that same culture of the first century where people are still to this day pushing back on Jesus and his teachings. And I guess my question for us to really kind of wrestle with, how much progress has that really unleashed upon planet Earth? How much better are we really as a culture? Are we really better? Are we really far more advanced? 
Or is it worthy of maybe re-looking at the teachings of Jesus? Like really the teachings of Jesus, not the teachings of Jesus that have developed plaque through religious systems and organizations and institutions, but the teachings of Jesus as they come to us directly from the mouth of Jesus. I, w- I would highly recommend that. That'd be a, a better, far better, more life-giving approach to not only you as a human being, but also to your family, to our neighborhoods, to the state of California, to the United States of America, to America on the global stage of the rest of the world. Look, Jesus is good. He's trustworthy. He loves us. And the things that he says actually have bearing upon our soul and upon society at large. As we continue, take a look at verse 27 as I make my way through. Jesus then goes on to say, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So there you go. Jesus, Jesus says the, the unsayable. Like, I and the father are one. But before he gets in that, he makes his point. He says, we gotta talk a little bit about my flock because obviously you religious leaders are not my sheep. If you were my sheep, you'd listen to my voice, you'd respond to my voice in obedience and love and treasuring what I have to say. But instead, you don't treasure what I have to say. You're looking for some way to call treason on me, <laughs> to destroy me, to crush me, uh, rather than worship me, rather than offer your lives as living sacrifices to me. Um, but Jesus does say, there are those that are my sheep, and they do hear my voice, and they treasure what I have to say. And then he goes on to say, I know them, and they know me. And again, this kind of gets to the heart of the gospel, where Jesus's aim is to bring you and me into this deep, life-giving, long-lasting relationship. So let's talk real quick about what eternal life is. Eternal life oftentimes gets sold within certain contexts as being nothing more than living forever and ever and ever and ever on a cloud, playing a harp, and God forbid, who wants to live like that anyhow? And so in other words, it gets caricature, if I can put it in simple terms. It becomes a caricature, a cartoon figure. And so when, you know, you see certain cartoons and images or comic strips, and they have this image of somebody in a cloud playing a harp, like, I don't want to live in that forever. I don't want to live in that forever either. That seems kind of boring and horrible. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. So it does involve an eternity sense, where, in other words, it is forever and ever and ever and ever. But it's forever and ever and ever in a regular state of life and goodness and beauty and truth. And this is what Jesus invites us into. What's the alternative? I think the alternative is planet Earth, California 2023. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe this. Like, the life that we find ourselves in the middle of right now, yes, there are good things. And again, the longer you live, the more you begin to realize there's a lot of painful things that happen in life. There's a lot of tough challenges in, that we face. And yeah, maybe punctuated by moments of like bliss and awesomeness and incredible sunsets like Friday night. But the fact of the matter is we live in a really just vastly broken world. And what are we going to do about it? Like, like, how do we change this? How do we change our, our situation, our relationship to this particular broken world? I think what Jesus is inviting us into very clearly is, is trust me, love me, listen to my voice, be my sheep, let me be your shepherd, and I will guide you and lead you and feed you and protect you because no one else will in this world. They may offer that. They may have ideas in which they will sell you, There's no shortage of narratives on the open market, but they will always fail you at some point. And this is what Jesus brings us back to time and time again. Trust me, and I will make you 
to be one that experiences eternal life. And he goes on to say, they will never perish. No one will snatch me, snatch them out of my hand. Uh, this kind of raises a question I oftentimes have people ask, and the question is, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Maybe some of you are even asking that question right now, because last night maybe you had a little bit too much to drink, or last night you might have done something with your boyfriend and girlfriend that you probably shouldn't have, and you feel like guilt, and that kind of mounts up, and you're questioning whether or not you really are a follower of Jesus. That, that's, that's good that you're questioning and thinking about that, but if you are a follower of Jesus, what I want to remind you and want you to really think about carefully is that the question is not, can I lose my salvation? It's more importantly, can God lose his sheep? Because if you belong to Jesus, you're gonna fail. You will drift. You will find yourself kind of bobbing and weaving in this thing we call a relationship with Jesus. You're not gonna be perfect. But if your security is based upon your performance, you will always be up and down and wondering, did I lose my salvation this week? Does God hate me this week? Does God love me this week? Because I really prayed a lot. I listened to, you know, Lectio 365 three mornings this week, and certainly he must love me. And it's like you fail again this week. But the point of the matter is, is that this is what Jesus says, that no one will take them out of my Father's hand. Some might say, I can jump out of God's hand. Have you ever seen the hand of God? It spans the universe. You Look, God's a big God, and he knows how to protect his own. So the point that I want to make is this, is that Jesus' words, whose words will you take? Jesus' words or trust your feelings about your performance? Let's move on to the very next thing, and we'll kind of wrap this up. So the invitation of Jesus, yet again, dot, 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 yet again. In other words, I want you to think about what Jesus is doing, which is kind of shocking in this particular context. Verse 31 says this, the Jews then picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus then answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you going to stone me? And Jesus answered, is, uh, or sorry, the Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, it's for blasphemy, because you being man made yourself to be God. So just in case you're wondering, a lot of times people will be like, I don't think Jesus ever said he was God. This right here tells us very clearly Absolutely, that's exactly what, what's going on right here. Jesus is claiming, like, I, I and the Father are one. Some would say, well, he's one with the Father in mission. No, not at all. It's, if, if they were just saying that we're one with the Father in the mission, the religious leaders could say the same. Hey, we're one with God, Yahweh God, in his mission. But Jesus is obviously claiming something even beyond just simply oneness in terms of aim or framework of what God's up to. He's setting himself as being equal with Yahweh God, which... Again, the Old Testament language would be worthy of a capital crime. So these guys have stones in their hand. They're about ready to kill him. And just by the way, this would be a perfect time. In case Jesus was like wrestling with, man, I feel so misunderstood. This would be a perfect time for Jesus to like bring some clarification. No, by the way, guys, put down your stones. I'm really not God. I'm not claiming that. I'm just a great preacher. I'm just a good dude trying to help other people. Jesus doesn't do that. Why? He doubles down because he knows the truth about himself. He knows the truth of what he's come to proclaim. This would have been a perfect time for him to just kind of walk away or back down or back away or bring some words of clarification, but he doesn't. So he goes on to say, verse 33, the Jews then answered him, it's not for good work they were about to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man have made yourself out to be God. Verse 34, then Jesus said, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods from the word of God, came the scripture cannot be broken verse 36 
Do you say to him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am God? This, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm not going to have time to do this with sufficiency. This is a reference to Psalm 82, which actually starts like this. God's declaring, he speaks, he says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So there's a bunch of different ways in which Jews have translated this or interpreted this or understood this. Uh, one of the ways is this idea of this divine council. There's a council room. Uh, you can call these, perchance, per, per um, divine beings, otherwise known as gods or Elohim in the plural. These would be lesser gods. So the question is, throughout uh, uh, Judaistic understanding of, of the Bible, there's, there's one God that rules above all other gods. So are there multiple gods according to Hebrew teachings? Yes. But one true God that is above all other gods. The rest, divine beings, we can call these angels or demons or things that have some form of power that don't have tangible physical bodies. God is God over all of these entities. And so what he seems to be identifying is that it's this idea of authority. Like authority has been granted or given to others and how that authority gets used or misused. Uh, in other words, people oftentimes take authority where they say, I want to be in authority but not under authority. By the way, it's one of the number one things that oftentimes gets dudes into a lot of problems is they want to be in authority. They want to have power. They want to have authority over other dudes, but they don't want to be under authority. They don't want to be submitted. They don't want to learn. They don't want to be under the guidance or coaching of someone else that can help guide them. In other words, there's, a, there's an absence of, of humility, and that absence of humility oftentimes leads to pride and arrogance, which, by the way, is the original sin of Adam and Eve. I mean, Eve was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing, making choices, setting himself above Yahweh God and the intentions of Yahweh God and bringing forth brokenness in this world and unleashing it to the rest of us. We can thank kind of the upstream for the obstinacy that we often have within our hearts. All right, last thing, I'm almost done. Verse 37, he says, if I am not going, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him and escape from their hands, is what Jesus did. What I'm blown away by in this particular passage is that Jesus, once again, says, look, if you don't want to believe me for my works, believe me for these other traits that I'm displaying. Jesus is still inviting them to trust him. Again, I, I go back to that question. Like, what, what does it take for you, or what will it take for you to fully devote your life to Jesus? What I want you to get in this picture of the scripture of Jesus himself, this kind of self-portrait of Jesus, but also this portrait of John for us to see about Jesus, is that he's deeply committed to bringing people in to trust him, to know him. And these are people that literally have stones in hand, Guns are cocked. They're ready to fire away at Jesus. And rather than talking them down, talking them out, he's like still inviting them to trust him. This is the type of person Jesus is. This is the type of God Jesus is and represents. So in conclusion, it says this in verse 40. In fact, as I'm concluding, I'm going to have Dan come on up and he'll lead us in a final closing song. So they'll get ready as I finish this last little segment here. So verse 40 says this. He went away across the Jordan, Jesus, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. 
And many came to him, and they said to him, John did no sign, but everything that John had said about this man was true, and many believed him. And it's a reference to John the baptizer. And what John, the writer of the gospel, which we said get a little bit confusing because you got John the writer, then you got John the baptizer, two different people. John the writer is talking about John the baptizer. He says, John the baptizer never did any miracles, and yet he was faithful to everything that Jesus had to say. At one point, Jesus actually described John the baptizer as being the greatest of all prophets. So I don't know if someone were to give a poll in this room and be like, who's the greatest prophet of all time? Like, I don't know if your answer would correlate with the answer of Jesus, but Jesus' answer would have been John the baptizer. The greatest prophet. How many miracles did John the baptizer do? Zero. Why, why do we oftentimes as a culture today, we place so much stock upon how many miracles did you do? How often do you speak in tongues? I mean, these, I, I'm not saying these are, these are like bad benchmarks, but I, I think sometimes they could be misleading benchmarks. John did none of them. Jesus says John is the greatest. What did John do? He was faithful to live for and to proclaim Jesus. So this kind of helps us to just reframe our understanding. What does Jesus look for in faithfulness? Faithfulness to obey and love and honor and trust him. I'm going to finish with this thought of his trust and confidence. I remember, in front, how about we all stand? I'm going to have this all stand. Uh, I remember as a high schooler, um, I remember hearing a, my high school pastor gave this teaching on trusting in Jesus, and he used this analogy of this guy by the name Charles Blondin, or maybe some of you have heard of him, I remember I was probably like 16 years old for the first time I'd ever heard this, and it like blew my mind. So this guy named Charles Blondin, he was apparently this great tightrope rocker, walker, some of you might have even heard this analogy, and he uh, put a tightrope across like the Niagara Falls, and he would like walk across, I don't know when this was, like 1800s or something like that, probably during the burned out district where everyone's like preaching for Jesus. But here's Charles Blondin in the middle of this whole thing, walking across, and people are like amazed by this guy. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, dog and pony show, everyone's excited to watch this guy, they do what we do today, like wait for the guy to fall and die. But he's so good, he never falls and dies. And so at one point, apparently the way the story goes is he's pushing a wheelbarrow across and he's like, hey, who, who believes I can push a wheelbarrow across? And everyone's like, give him bets. Like, we believe you can do this. And finally he turns to some dude in the crowd. He's like, bro, if you believe that I can do this, hop in the wheelbarrow and I'll push you across. And the guy's like, no way, checks out. So that, in a sense, that's belief. It's literally putting yourself into the wheelbarrow of Jesus, saying, I will let him be the one that guides and shapes and directs and sets forth the direction of my life. That's, that's what faith is. And again, I realize to get to a place of confidence in relationship, we have to sometimes get past our objections. So again, I end on this question for you. What are your objections? What are the things that you need Jesus to do for you in order to nudge you into a state of total, complete devotion to the one who gave himself to you. So I want to pray, and let's just lift up our voices and sing this second song. Jesus, thank you so much for your great love. And we even now just devote our hearts, our minds, our intellect, our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, we lay them at your feet. Our anticipations, our messianic expectations our dashed and broken dreams, those things that are still like bruises in our soul. And we just even now, Father, just want to confess our need for you. So let's lift up our voice and just sing loudly and courageously these, these words to him.